The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Collar, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder, advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. It's quite now, busy here today, isn't it? It is. A bit of, bit of background noise for us. Excellent. Yes. Now, listen, did you uh, watch the soccer Look, last night? Alan, Australia v Denmark at 2am, did I, you? I have been up since 12.30am. So no, I've had hours no. to get ready for this and watching lots of soccer, and it was just fantastic. Matthew Leckie, what an amazing goal. So what point of the game did the, did the goal happen? 60 minutes. Right. So brilliant piece of duck and weave and then slotted it uh, off the left. Um, and I just love – my favourite player is Harry Sutar in defence. He's six foot six, so he's 198 centimetres. I just Googled him before. His mum was born in Port Hedland. So he's never lived in Australia, never played for an Australian club. He's basically played in the Scottish League and now he plays for Stoke in the English Premier League. But in 2019, he goes, I'm an Australian under the rules of if a parent is born there. And he's just proving to be the pillar of our defence and he's got this beautiful, thick Scottish accent. But he never, he doesn't live he's, in Australia. Never, I don't know if he's ever even been here. <laughs> <laughs> Blow. He's a fantastic player. Yeah, we don't care, do we? So as long, as he's, as, long as he's good in defence. It's like the Samoans in uh, so was he rugby important? league. Was he uh, important last night? again. I mean, he did the sliding tackle in the last game, which was pivotal, and he was the absolute rock in defence again today. So he's in our best three and, uh, you know, honorary Australian at best. So uh, All right. do you think we can beat the Argentinians on um, Sunday morning? Six o'clock? Seven I've got a graph for tonight's news showing uh, GDP per capita of Australia and Argentina, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's fifty versus eighteen, fifty thousand versus eighty thousand, eighteen thousand. So, oh gosh! Oh well. When, I mean, when are the when's Australia versus Argentina? Six o'clock Sunday morning. Right. So. Um, oh, we can watch that. And uh, I'm glad though, because if we're going to lose, I want to lose to a top four country. So I mean, like losing to Italy in two thousand and six. You want to you want to have a great effort and then go out to a marquee hmm. brand. So yeah. uh, the AGM the general meeting season has wrapped up. You've had a big one, Stephen, this year, haven't you not? I mean, Whoa. every time I open my bloody computer, there you are tweeting about the, another five AGMs that you've attended with questions. How many this year? Well, I'm up to 124 for the year, uh, and I'll probably finish about 135 because I've got the big three banks to go, Orica, Instatech, Pivot, Elders, and there's a Magellan EGM where they're asking for an increase in the fee cap for the directors. So... Yeah, I'll finish at 135. The previous record was 70. So it's just the beauty of the online You AGM. just smashed the record. You've just, absolutely. You're going for the World Cup Absolute, of absolutely. AGMs. Absolutely you? loving it. And, and that, that includes a couple of proxies. So I did send a proxy along to annoy Jerry Harvey at the Harvey Norman AGM because I couldn't get to Sydney and there's no online component. And Jerry made an interesting claim. He claimed that he's been chairman of a public company since 1972 and, quote, I'm the longest living and I hold the record. It's wrong. Is that true? You'd know. No, it's wrong. It's because, wrong. Because he, Alan Bond bought Norman Ross in 1982, failed to put a non-compete in. So Jerry and Ian Norman, his partner, then started Harvey Norman six months later. But it was 
he hasn't been chairman of a public company since 1972. He had a period where he was out when Bondi took over his company. Rupert has the Murdoch. He's been CEO of a public company since 1952, January 50, sorry, January 53. So Jerry's telling porkies about his uh, records. Well, that's unusual for Jerry. Yeah, big talking Jerry. Hardly normal with their governance. And uh, I, I did like this quote from Stephen Johns, the, uh, the chairman of Goodman Group. Um, where he said, quote, I do appreciate your involvement and your questions are always very far-sighted. Sometimes a little devious, but we always enjoy them. So <laughs> I've never been called devious before. Oh, bullshit. Of well, course no, you've been called pub- devious. No, but not publicly. Well, behind not, your back anyway. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm totally, I'm totally devious. But to have a chairman come out and say, you know, your questions are a little devious, I thought that was quite amusing. But so what? Uh, apart from that, what, what's been the uh, the goal of the day, or the goal of the year this for you this this year, Stephen? Oh, well, look, I mean, one KPI of AGMs is is do your questions make the press? So I've had two this week. So one where I asked the CEO of Linus, the rare earths company, whether she'd got on the Morrison teat with all those handouts and uh, what she thought about government bailouts and propping up of rare earths. And she came out and, and said some amazing stuff about the Chinese have got it right with propping up the industry and Western governments don't like um, propping up this industry, which is pivotal. They've got policy ADHD, she said. And uh, so she sort of bagged them. So that's been given a run. And ADHD? Yeah, policy ADHD by Western governments on, on rare earths. Yeah, I like so that, that. That was a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, so uh, Victorian election um, uh, got smashed. I, I must say I really enjoyed watching the ABC's coverage and in particular Tony Barry. On uh, Saturday night, what a what a legend he is! Uh, well, he's so I mean, it's so rare to see to find anybody in politics who actually says something interesting and what they actually think. Yes. And he says that uh, yeah, yeah, the Liberal oh, Party will protect the, the guilty and punish the innocent. <laughs> punish the innocent. <laughs> still continue to drink I the Kool Aid. I think that's what's happened to him. Just by the by, so oh, well. he has been a long time political staffer and he used so to So he's help one out. of the innocent who's been punished. Yeah, he was one of Robert Doyle's. Yeah, he, he's a long-term journeyman, worked for Turnbull, Doyle and all sorts of people, but uh, he's out now and he's a straight talker. And uh, But I'm, I'm disappointed that Dan got back so easily because he's just been so financially reckless. And the policy issue I really found most objectionable was we're going to bring back the SEC. We're going to bring back What's the wrong with State that? Electricity Commission. Well, well the SEC stands for slow, that? easy and comfortable. It was the most inefficient yeah, but he's government not, monopoly But he's not actually time. bringing it back. It's just rubbish. He's, all he's yeah, doing is using, he's using the label SEC to invest in some renewables. So it's not, it's not bringing back the SEC. It's just, that was just a stunt. Yeah, it was a total stunt, but he also so, made up rubbish. Like he claimed that the, the companies that bought the SEC have made $23 billion in profits, which is total rubbish. They have not made $23 billion. The privatisation of the SEC and the gas and fuel brought in $30 billion to Victorian taxpayers and it reduced state debt from $33 billion to $3 billion. And you were working for Jeff Kennan at the time, were you not? So declare your, declare your conflict yeah, of interest, Stephen. Yeah. And, but, but basically what, I, what annoyed me about Dan is he's basically saying privatisation is terrible and only government can do stuff. Yet this is a bloke who sold off the port of Melbourne for $10 billion, sold off the Vic Roads motor licensing database for $7 billion, sold off the land titles office for $3 billion, got Transurban, gave them $2 billion to, to do a $10 billion toll road in the west and, and extended their concession by 10 years. So he's been privatising like there's no tomorrow as well and he comes out as captain government ownership. 
Well, and he's Jesus, bankrupt don't tell me a politician's hypocritical. I mean, God forbid. Yeah. But no, it's just, there's I no mean, such thing as a good third-term government. I mean, he is a, he's like a brilliant CEO. He's like that. He's like John Elliott. He's like the swashbuckling CEO. He's got enormous power, but it's all leveraged, and I think it's all going to come crashing down when he, uh, when the debt comes home to roost because uh, he hasn't got $10 billion a year yeah, so, of iron okay, right. like well, What WA. about the Liberal Party? Where, where do they go from here? Well, they're a mess. I mean, they're still paying the price for the Christian zealot right-wing religious takeover. There's still too many of these anti-abortion types in progressive Victoria. And maybe, maybe Labor's shown how you do it. You sack the party, appoint administrators, and then you do all your pre-selections from head office so you've got no nutters. Whereas the Liberals have still got crazy members appointing crazy candidates and they're unelectable. So John Pursuta will be better as the leader. But, if he um, wins. He, 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 he has won. So he's won the seat. He's won the seat. Yeah, he's got to fend off a couple of other white white guys, you know, three white guys running for it. I know. What a It's four... A four, four white guys e- now e- down Four to white guys of around about the same age who all look roughly the same. Yeah. The only difference none is... none of whom are premier material. The only difference is John Pesciuto's, um grey hair on his temples. Yeah. Really, and that's, yeah. The, that's the only difference between all four of them. They've actually got to recruit... A, a new CEO. They've got to be like a company that's gone hopeless, time for change, and they've got to recruit someone like, and I was trying to think who could the Liberals bring in. So Brian McNamee. They bring him in as the, the legend of CSL and say he's going to be our next Premier. Or Marnie Baker, who's the female CEO of Bank of Bendigo, who grew up on a dairy farm, has run the Bendigo Bank for five years, but there's no one in the Parliament who can Maybe be Maybe they should now. run an international search yeah. like companies yeah. Why do. should the talent pool be restricted to who's sitting in the Parliament now? Because their talent pool is hopeless. They've well, got to go outside. the talent pool is restricted to who the members of each seat happen to yeah. choose. The Liberal Party members of each seat happen to choose, which goodness yeah. knows. And I mean, who knows who they are even? Yeah, it's not working. And, uh, yeah, so... Anyway, yep. now what about house prices? They've uh, well, they've come, come down. Out this the, they're out again this morning. This is first of first of December. November house prices have now fallen six point nine percent Australia wide uh, from the peak, which is the uh, the biggest fall uh, the biggest fall since uh, for forty years since nineteen eighty two, and is the is the fastest so far uh, ever, and the consensus. Uh, forecast seems to be for a 15% fall next year, and that would be the largest fall ever in house prices. But it's all relative. It's, this is all following the most ridiculous bubble we've ever seen. So, Well, I had a graph, I think it was either last night or the night before, showing uh, from ANZ. So they've, they're predicting a, an 18% fall in house prices, and they, they kindly provided a graph of that prediction, right, and so, what an eighteen percent fall in house prices, which seems, which would be the biggest ever fall uh, if it happens, it just gets it back to the long term trend. So it's basically an eighteen percent fall represents mean reversion, yeah. which is because of the twenty two percent increase yeah. last year. Yeah, which was so all driven a, by ridiculously low interest rates and money printing for too long, and uh, they are overstimulated, and and now they're trying to take the air out of the tire. Speaking of which, um, uh, Dr. Lowe. Apologise. Jeez, you, I mean, were, you were early on him. You were you were early. I did a in. I did a Sunday night piece on the ABC News a couple of months ago, and I finished it looking into the barrel of the camera, saying, "How about an apology, Doctor Lowe?" <laughs> and you got it. You're we very got... influential, Alan. Very influential. Uh, we but, got it. So uh, he should be humble, given what he's done. 
So, um, well, look, I, I, mean, I, I, think, I, I must say, I think that people like me are a bit hard on him, but you know, I mean, it's true that he he was he, he had the best interest of the country at heart. He wasn't in any way, certainly wasn't profiting personally from any of this, no, and he of was, not. and he was, and he was trying to do his best, you know. Um, but they also and so and the and the problem and I've said this a few times the problem was that they went into the pandemic with the cash rate at 0.75 yeah and so the three rate high, the rate cuts that were available to them uh, he felt I think he's, and I think he was right were not enough for mm. what was what they were looking at so they had to do more than three rate cuts mm. and the more that they decided on was two things one was printing money and the second was to say that rates will stay where they are for three yeah. years. And that's the key lesson, is never make a forecast. I mean, no public company forecasts beyond the current year. And even the cautious ones don't do that at all. They just say it's too volatile, you know. So just don't ever make a forecast. Little, lit, literally a three-year forecast is unheard of. Well, totally unheard of. But it's also meaningless, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and now he's talking about no one listened to my caveats. I mean, come on. They were pretty... Hard to see. Well, or the caveats hard to hear. were. I mean, uh, to be honest, uh, uh, I mean, I went back over and read every one of the because he because he st- he started saying it in November 2020, and he kept going uh, till basically till the end of 2021. So more than a year. For more than a year, he was saying every, no, no rises before 24. That's right. So, yeah. uh, but the thing is, the, the caveat was we don't expect the conditions to be met wow. for a rate. Increase until yeah. 2024. So uh, that's not much of a caveat, really, when it's you think like, about it. It's like how we're legislating against what Morrison did, that if you appoint yourself as a minister, it must be publicly disclosed. I think we should legislate to say that the Reserve Bank governor is not allowed to make an interest rate forecast beyond 12 months. Put it in the legislation because he's stuffed up and normally governments overreact with legislative interventions after a yeah, stuff well, up. Yeah, we'll so. look, we'll see what the review comes out with... Um, in March, when they finish reviewing, maybe they'll come up with something like that. Yes. Well, I hope so. But um, well, let's move to questions, eh? Yes. Paul says, I've received an email from Oz Retirement Trust, my super fund, about their uh, AGM next year. And if I would like to watch, submit questions. Usually I file these things under spam, but after getting in a money cafe over the last year uh, and watching Alan on ABC since I was a teenager, God, I feel old now. Oh, no, no, Paul's probably only 21. Uh, I felt like maybe it was time to actually pay more attention to AGMs. One for Stephen. How do you know what to ask? What do you go... Do you go for the gotchas or try to fi- try and find information that companies are less than for- forthcoming with? Go, Stephen. All right. So, look, my approach is, as a journalist, there's always a gotcha instinct in any journalist. So, there is an element of gotcha with how I do it. But my main approach is to... Ask questions which are interesting for the rest of the audience and get the company to say things they haven't said before. So in the case of Australia Retirement Trust, um, Paul is one of their 2.1 million members. So this is the big Queensland industry fund. It's the merger of Q Super and Sun Super. And they've got 214 billion under management. So look, look at their annual report. I'd be sort of saying, Okay, so the chairman is Andrew Fraser. Why doesn't his CV mention in the annual report that he was the Queensland Labor Treasurer for five years? What are you trying to hide with your CV? Why are there five union secretaries on the board? Five out of 12. I mean, this is just two union captured. And then you'd ask about, they've had good performance. I'd go diversity. The CEO, the CIO and the chairman are all white males. What's going on there? Where's your diversity? 
Um, and then they did a rapid fire rush of investment, which is probably good. Um, and they've got 4,000 advisors. So are you providing a good advisory service to us 2.1 million members since the banks have all got out of financial planning? So how good is your service? But industry funds, they're not members. This is a customer meeting. So industry funds are owned by the unions and the employer groups. Um, these guys have got two independent directors outside of the whole union employer group thing, so they should have more than that. So there's a few issues to raise, Paul. But look, they perform well. Um, and uh, ask them about ESG as well. Uh, what are they doing on governance and social and climate? Catherine says, which cafe and what time do you record the Money Cafe? My daughter and I will be in Melbourne during the week of 5 December. We would enjoy being part of the background noise and meet Alan and James on December 8. So that's, uh, that's next week, right? Yes. Um, so James, James and I meet at Leclerc Cafe in Hawthorne, Glenferry Road, Hawthorne. I don't know what the number is, but you can look it up. Le, L-E, C-L-E-C, Clec. <laughs> in the in the courtyard at the back, at the back, which is a roofed fort courtyard at nine a.m. That's right. So at nine a.m. That's because James has a real job. Whereas when Alan and I get together, we usually do it at a more leisurely hour. We do because James has to go and write his chanticleer columns. But uh, but listen, we'd love to see you and your daughter Catherine here. Um, so please pop in. Now I must say because after friendly Geordies got firebombed. The, the, the YouTuber, controversial YouTuber, got firebombed. I was getting a bit nervous about telling people you know, where I am because you know, the great thing about Australia is that there's never any violence against the oh, media. Oh, yeah, but our Money Cafe listeners are all very yeah, nice. I just hope They're I have enough to come said... and firebomb us, are no, they? No. <laughs> well, I was thinking actually that have you ever heard of the podcast The Rest is Politics, which is a magnificent UK no. podcast? It's Alistair Campbell, who was Tony Blair's spin doctor, and Rory Stewart, who was a, a, a Tory MP leadership contender. Their podcast is so popular, they go on the road and they've sold out the Albert Hall. The Albert so Hall? The Albert Hall, yeah. There's, there's so many people come and okay. they get over a thousand questions a week. Okay, well, we and have we to. We get 10. <laughs> so they're the benchmark, Alan. We're going to have. A thousand questions? You can only fit so about. How long does the podcast go for? for well, they do, a, they do a whole hour on questions and then they do a whole hour on the podcast. So they basically, whereas we do the combined 15, 15 minute split. So they're working four times as hard as us and they're getting. A hundred times as many okay. questions. So we'll book out Rod Laver Arena. <laughs> we'll see if we can get six people into the clack next week and then uh, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> we'll be doing well. Campbell says, with the continual influx of superannuation payments from employers to employees to the Australian share market, how does the market ever trend backwards? Wouldn't this massive monthly contribution to the market offset any selling? Uh, well, it's interesting because uh, it's a good question, actually, because uh, it certainly does, the, the, the inflow of money certainly does tend to uh, support share prices, uh, but it, that isn't to say that super funds never sell. They do. And the other sell. point I would make is that don't forget that someone's got to buy the $887 billion worth of federal bonds that are on issue at the moment and the circa $500 billion of state bonds. So it's not all just going to the share market and capital requirements in Australia, the biggest capital demand is government debt. Someone's got to give the government all this debt. Well, but also industry funds are putting about half their money into unlisted assets yes, at that, the moment that, as well. That's true. And it is interesting. There is 
$3.32 billion in super at the moment, but this is down $100 billion over the last 12 months because it was $3.43 billion as of September 21. I didn't know that. So $100 billion has been wiped out. It's negative 3% in the last 12 months to September 30, and that's mainly the bond market route because bond prices have crashed with rising interest rates. But uh, you are right. $50 billion a year of, of money into super, it is an enormous freight train of capital coming at the public company space and that's why so many companies list here and raise money here because there's this, this all this capital looking for a home yep pat i write to ask why deposit rates offered by banks to smsfs and companies for that matter are so much lower when compared to deposit rates offered to individuals by the same banks this appears to be the case across all accounts from transaction accounts to 24-hour call to term deposits why is this have you, have you investigated this, Stephen? Look, I think the best explanation of this is, is, yes, overall they do tend to offer retail more, and that's because they're preying on the apathy of retail because if they can get people through the door and then they become lazy, apathetic people who don't chase the best-term deposit, they become a long-term profitable customer. So the banks make most of their money out of people whose salary goes into a bank account earning close to zero. Whereas corporates are more sophisticated, they, they look at it every day. So I just think it's just this, it's like electricity offers where you get all these honeymoon rates to get in the door and then they rip you off once the honeymoon is over. So I think that's probably the explanation for it. Diane says, thanks for the podcast, which is entertaining as well as informative. Regarding your discussion in yesterday's podcast, I've heard one that one is able to sell shares of a delisted company for a nominal sum through an arrangement that is described at www.delisted.com.au This facility is offered as a service for those who wish to declare a loss on their tax return and have an idea it is linked and I have an idea it is linked in some way to the Australian Shareholders Association. You might want to check it out. Yes, so Delisted has been running since 2003. It was set up by the original CEO of the Shareholders Association, Mr Tony McLean. And it's a very, and the ASX assisted him and encouraged him to set this up. It's a very efficient way to crystallise your losses that delisted will buy your shares for a nominal sum and then you can claim the tax loss. So uh, they've got an AFSL, um, they're credible. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's, it's a good service uh, for people who want to sell for a nominal amount rather than waiting for the official liquidator's report to come out. Um, yeah, so it's not a, not a bad solution. Now, Anonymous says, this $5 million super limit is glossed over as being perhaps inevitable despite decades-old contribution restrictions, meaning the cohort of 16,000 people it affects probably dying out and becoming a non-issue. There is no discussion of whether couples can have 10 million, i.e. 5 million each. If one dies, is there forced selling of the 5 million? Is rebalancing between couples allowed? Will the five million be indexed? We await the May budget. Now, Alan, you're a fan of this five million dollar limit, so can you answer some of Anonymous's questions here about the wrinkles in the proposal? Uh, well, obviously, I've got no idea what they're going to come up with in terms of the detail of the policy. I presume there will be that this policy, but we haven't. We don't even know that for sure. Uh, um, I doubt. I doubt that there'll be forced selling. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, there hopefully selling. there'll be grandfathering. You don't want retrospective legislation. Um, and I, I, if I was doing this, I would go 10 million each, so couples can have 20 million. 
Um, if, if one of the spouses dies, the, the 10 million goes across and the other can have 20. Yeah, so it does need to be capped, but just do it gently. It needs to be capped. 10 million each. At much less than 10 million each. No, Goodness me, no, Stephen, no. What about 10 million no indexation? Set and forget. 10 million, that's it. Because it's a nice round number. It's a nice high roof. And just let the, let the balances build up to that over, over time. I don't think it should be indexed, but I do think it should be revisited. I don't know. Every it is a great tax, Luke, super. So I, I agree. It's $400 million SMSFs. It's just a joke. Well, I reckon a $10 million SMSF is a joke. It's a joke. Come on. No. I, $10 million. All right. Really. All right. Fine. Well, okay. But uh, anyway, the more you cap it, then the more victims you are. And it's just, I don't know. I don't like retrospective tax policies. Jordan says... How come you got two in a row? Anyway? Well, oh, because I've read this script. Love the show. Can you please explain whether it could work to give the RBA the power to adjust the super contribution rate rather than just the cash rate to try and control inflation? i.e. short-term, raise the super cap to, say, 12%, reducing incomes by 1.5% to reduce disposable income while putting more away for retirement. Surely a win-win. What am I missing? Look, that's just a crazy idea. You can't go changing uh, contribution rates at the stroke of a pen just to adjust to some interest rate cycle. I mean, I do agree you should have some flexible counter-cyclical tax levers to pull, and petrol (laughs) excise is a good one. There's a t- there are there are so many other uh, levers the RBA could theoretically pull. That's one of them. They could increase and reduce the GST rate. They could, yeah, as no, you said. No, you, but think of the admin. You can't just put the GST rate no, up I'm, and down. I'm not saying you, you should do it. I'm just saying that we've all agreed, the, the society's agreed that the, the RBA can independently raise and lower interest rates. Yeah. And that's where it's going to stay. Yeah, but I think they should also be far more active in buying and, and printing money and doing cash buybacks, so controlling the amount of money supply rather than just, oh, yeah. just one-off printing and never buy it back. Um, but look, they should work with the government and tweak a few taxes as well to, to offset the cycle. It shouldn't all be down to interest rates. But the other things, the taxes, super, the super contribution rate and so on, they're, they're government decisions yeah, political decisions, they will never be the handed over to the no, uh, right. to the independent uh, body. Okay, uh, uh, Sean says, could you educate me a little on dividend reinvestment plans? I've never subscribed as my holdings were too small, but now it's building up. Are there tax issues or other benefits to participation? And are all schemes different and need to be researched individually? Or is, is it more a blanket-style decision for a portfolio? It seems to be if somebody already has a, a relatively small time investor thinking about the next 15 to 20 years that a subscription to a DRP is a good set-and-forget way to compound. Yes, of course, you're right, uh, Sean, no doubt about it. And there are tax issues. The, uh, the ATO has a, um, a section on its website for dividend reinvestment plans, so you can look it up. But what it says is, just in brief, if you reinvest your dividends for tax purposes, you'll be treated, you treat the transaction as though you had received the cash dividend and then use it to buy more shares. This means you must declare the dividend as income in your tax return. The additional shares are subject to capital gains tax. The acquisition cost of the additional shares is the amount of the dividends used to acquire them. Yes. Uh, but there's much more detail on the ATO website with examples and so on. Yeah, so and the good and the important thing is you do get the franking credit with the, with the, in the DRP. I would say that the two most important things to consider is 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 the company offering a discount to the volume weighted average price. So if they're saying you get the shares at one or two two and a half percent less than the market price, 
Over time, that can add up. But ultimately, it's a question of price. If you think the company has good long-term growth prospects, then by all means, compound in. And those who did that with, say, Commonwealth Bank, CSL and Macquarie over the long term, that's been a massively successful decision. But if you were DRPing into dogs like Tabcor, Seven West Media and AGL, then you've lost money because you could have taken cash out and instead you've reinvested at a very high price. So don't do a DRP at the very top of a bubble, but do do a DRP at the depths of a bear market because it's all about the price. Pete says, when I grow up, I want to be a shareholder activist just like Stephen. How does a shareholder actor such as yourself earn a crust? Does your activism work pay the bills or is your activism a hobby that supports your other jobs? And why is your portfolio so small? It's $34,000. Well, that was last month. It's now down to $27,000. Little exposure to the stock market relative to your overall net worth. I reckon $34,000 is probably uh, a a bit relative to your net worth, isn't it, Stephen? Well, it's now down to $27,000 with a $13,000 margin loan because I've been selling out after attending a few AGMs All right. to maximise my cash position. But look, no, I basically, I'm not allowed to mortgage the house. My wife won't let me. So um, that's why I don't have much in the market. And look, it is a bit of a charity job. You can uh, you can do a bit of journalism and write about your experiences. Um, and look, I have made probably 400000 gross out of capital raisings since 2008. But the vast majority of that, as my wife keeps reminding me, was in 2009, 10 and 11. So I can't keep talking about stuff that happened a decade ago. Yeah, that's ago. not really going on anymore, is it? You're no, not there's not. much out of that. No, I'm, I, look, COVID, I'm, I can make a quick 35,000 during COVID. So there was a, so you, you need a lot of, you know, crisis dis- capital raisings. I, I must say, everyone, I've been trying to find ways for Stephen to uh, make a living out of this activity. Um, and I'm not sure I've succeeded yet, but uh, I'm still working on it. I really am keen for Stephen to keep doing what he's doing, but to actually make a living out of yes. it. Which well, I do get a wonderful $37,000 as a, as a, a local government councillor. But, yeah, I, I rarely get into six figures uh, when I talk to the tax man each year of, of income, as my wife is reminding me. But she's she's an ex-CEO. She's back at the bar as a barrister, so... I just uh, sit back and annoy people on her coin, basically. She doesn't listen to this, thankfully. So, uh. <laughs> so I'll ask the Love last you, one. I'll ask the last one from Ben. I recently found the show, and I'm now a regular listener. I'm surprised by Stephen's rejection of a super profits tax, especially given our relatively low revenue compared to the likes of Qatar, who export similar amounts of gas to us. Further, it, if it is tied to profits above a certain level, aka. Uh, Queensland's new coal tax, surely that protects business. I would be interested to hear why he thinks it isn't a good idea, given the expenses associated with the energy transition supporting coal mining communities. I reckon this is a terrible uh, last question because who – I mean, it's boring, but go on. Well, no, look, go it, on. It, it is interesting because um, I agree that I like Queensland's new coal tax. Do you know what the marginal rate is? It's 40% for every dollar sold at a coal price above $300 a tonne. So it's a sliding scale, whereas over in WA, it's a flat iron ore royalty of sort of it's around the 6% mark. And they should be doing the same. So like WA got $11.4 billion in iron ore royalties in 2021 when the iron ore price peaked at $220 a tonne. 
But it's now back to, you know, $7 billion or something because the iron ore price has come back down to $92.90. They make $81, $81 million for every dollar of iron ore price. And uh, they have $30 billion of debt still. So I agree that the WA government should increase iron ore royalties, but I don't want to see the feds reaching in when they're already making a fortune on the 30% company tax, taking even more off the resources sector. It should be the states putting the taxes up. Finally, from Ben, he says, uh, I'm an elder shareholder. Why did the market react so harshly to their recent results? Was it simply the CEO announcing his departure? Well, I think it was really interesting because it was such an overreaction. I mean, it wasn't, it was an okay result. And so, okay, the CEO's gone and the market, the market just absolutely smashed yeah, it. The stock it, went from 13 to 10 bucks. But it was, you, it was priced to perfection. They almost went broke. When all those timber companies went broke, like Ospine and uh, Guns, they almost went broke too. So it's been a magnificent turnaround absolutely. by elders. But it was just a bit overpriced. It was priced to perfection. And the CEO's going and the earnings forecast wasn't so good. And so off she came. I've just bought some elder shares a couple of days ago and I will be going to the December 15 AGM at 10am, which is just after our final triple header money cafe for the year when James, myself and yourself will all be in the clack for the first time as a threesome. I can't wait. (laughs) We should sell tickets to that one. Yes. There's about 10 seats here in the clack. What time are we going to be doing that? Oh, I think it's a nine o'clock start. It's an early start, that one. Oh. You've got to do something and James has got to go to work and earn a real... Earn, well, earn come on, everybody. Crowd into, crowd into Leclerc and uh, watch the three of us Just go Just don't firebomb us. That's it. Thanks for listening, everybody, to today's episode of Money Cafe. We'll be back next week with James Thompson at 9am in Leclerc. Send in your question and we'll answer it by email. And so send in the question to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I am Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm Stephen Main, etc. Talk to you soon. <laughs>